are we exercising all the time so that we're too busy and too exhausted to dismantle the structures that are actually keeping us down? Welcome to The Feminist Present, the podcast where we use the gift of feminism to figure out what's going on right now. He's Adrian Daub. And she's Laura Good. And we are your co-hosts. Adrian, who do we have on deck today? Today, we're talking to the one and only Maura Donegan, who is an opinion columnist for The Guardian, and who has also written for The New Yorker, N Plus One, The New Republic, and is well known for a viral essay that came out in The Cut called I Started the Media Men List, which is about how... Well, spoiler alert, she created a media men list. Laura, can you say a little bit for those listeners of ours who may not be familiar with this list? What was the shitty media men list? I would love to talk about it because I am a woman who attended an MFA program in New York City before the Me Too era. So I know a lot about the media men list. The media men list was a crowdsourced and anonymously posted list of allegations against men, editors, writers, etc. in the media industry who were alleged to have committed various offenses against women, especially younger women, especially women who were earlier in their careers and had less power and were more exploitable. And these allegations range from nonspecific allegations of mistreatment to things as serious as rape. And it was, I don't know, in the way that I experienced it, it was both incredibly eye-opening and incredibly unsurprising in that None of these were new stories. None of these were things I had never heard anything about before, but there was something really powerful about seeing them all amass. Well, and the really impressive thing is that Maura didn't just sort of provide a framework or a platform for women to talk about these issues. She then wrote this really important essay sort of reflecting on what had made the shitty media men list necessary and possible, right? Yeah, that essay, I started the media men list, which she published in the cut in January 2018. Whenever I hear the title, I always hear the phantom shitty in my head, but obviously New York Magazine could not print that in a headline. But I've read this essay countless times. I've taught this essay. It's an essay that I think about weekly, if not daily. And just to, if you're not familiar with the essay, just to give you a little taste of it, I'll read an excerpt. Moira writes, When I first shared the spreadsheet among my women friends and colleagues, it took on the intense sincerity of our most intimate conversations. Women began to anonymously add their stories of sexual assault. Many of the accounts there were violent, detailed, and difficult to read. I'm going to skip over a few of those violent and graphic accounts because... It's probably too early in the morning for you to listen to that. Watching the cells populate, it rapidly became clear that many of us had weathered more than we had been willing to admit to one another. There was the sense that the capacity for honesty, long suppressed, had finally been unleashed. This solidarity was thrilling, but the stories were devastating. I realized that the behavior of a few men I had wanted women to be warned about was far more common than I had ever imagined. This is what shocked me about the spreadsheet, the realization of how badly it was needed how much more common the experience of sexual harassment or assault is than the opportunity to speak about it. I'm still trying to grapple with this realization. I've been trying to grapple with that realization. I don't even know for how long. I mean, I, I feel like I could measure my age in the number of years that I've been trying to grapple with that realization. <laughs> yeah. You know, we had uh, Maura stop by the Clayman Institute last fall and help us sort of grapple with this question of what makes a whisper network necessary? What makes it work? What are the ethics of rumor, essentially, in a situation where certain kinds of knowledge are systematically 
rendered illegitimate, right? Where certain kinds of things are not speakable unless you, you know, have truly kind of outlandish evidentiary standards. I should say that we didn't end up talking to Mora about it again this time around. Although I think questions about how private bodies relate to public discourses was once again at the top of our mind, but so was Jane Fonda. Yes, she was. I mean, when isn't Jane Fonda at the top of my mind? But um, yeah, Moira proposed to us that we talk a little bit about exercise during the, uh, I prefer to pronounce quarantine with the accent on the third syllable, quarantine era. Mm, Oh, that is very like Ovaltine. Yeah, exactly. I got it from a video of like an angry guy in New York who said it that way. There's no way to talk about bodies being surveilled and policed by ourselves and others. Even if we're talking about that in the context of 80s workout videos, there's no way that doesn't rub up against some issues in the present. So that's exactly what we talked about with Moira. We covered a little bit of 90s self-defense modes. We covered a lot of Jane Fonda. It's never, never a bad time to cover Jane Fonda. Just so much Jane Fonda. Well, I mean, we are trying to trick her to come on the podcast, right? So, I mean, that's... It's not a trick. I am directly proposing yeah. to Jane Fonda yeah. any kind of relationship that she would be willing to have with me. There's a red carpet out in my house just for when Jane Fonda appears on our on We are our keeping podcast. it groomed and ready for Jane Fonda. So, Jane, I'm sure you're listening. Please call us. But until then, we're so happy that the iconic Moira Donegan, who, like, when she came to the Clayman Center, also very casually had to, like, step out to a lunch date with Rebecca Solnit after hanging out with us. And she was like, do you guys know Rebecca Solnit? And we did. I explained it to her that I totally knew <laughs> Rebecca Solnit and who she was. Adrian mansplained Rebecca Solnit to Moira Donegan. Let's say that clearly for the record. I mean, there's only so often that you get the opportunity to do this. <laughs> Without further ado, then, we hope you enjoy this episode of The Feminist Present featuring writer Moira Donegan. Enjoy it. How would you describe your relationship to exercise? Well, you know, before we all went into quarantine, my relationship to exercise was kind of like dutiful and non-committal. You know, I would go to the gym and I would sort of space out while I was there. And then, you know, I would come home and I would consider it to have been a virtuous accomplishment for the day. Quarantine happened and I don't, I think it was even stricter where you guys are, but in New York City, they closed the gyms, stopped exercising and I found myself really antsy. Like I did not realize that it was a pretty central component of my mental health. And, you know, at the same time, because of the closing down of things and sort of the contracting of my work. Or yeah, the whole world has contracted. Right. I was kind of like catapulted into this like leisure class briefly, um, which is a tremendous privilege. But also, you know, I just I was in quarantine. I had all this free time because I didn't have as much work to do and I had nowhere to go. But I did have tons of time at home and a lot of extra energy and anxiety to burn. And I started exercising sort of as a coping mechanism. Yeah, I feel that. And I started lifting weights because we have some weights in the house, which was fun. And I went through, I think, like every 1990s and 80s aerobics video on YouTube. I'm very familiar with the Jane Fonda repertoire. 
repertoire. Oh my god, you really did a deep. Dive I did a deep dive. Well, it's all available for free. Like so much of it. There's a very interesting late Soviet era aerobics competition that's narrated by like an enthusiastic Russian commentator. So I was doing this all, and I was like, kind of thinking for the first time because I had so much time really like about the gender politics of exercise like something that is regimented in its sex segregation right like there are exercises that are for men and there are exercises that are for women and it tends to be a lot of weight lifting and resistance training for men and cardiovascular activities geared towards weight loss for women sort of the gender stylization and gender ideology of the women's exercise arena kind of struck me as newly weird <laughs> i think because of just market pressures there's a simultaneous goal of weight loss and disavowal of that goal at the same time so especially if you're looking at sort of new agey yoga instructors or i am a fan of some aerobics classes that are sort of geared towards queer people that have moved online like organizations like pony to sweat there's one called dance church and these are places that are very much about fat loss, caloric deficits, aimed cardiovascular activities, but they would never, ever say that. And, you know, there's this conflict between the avowed politics sort of on the surface and the functional politics underneath the surface that I found really weird when I was spending so much time in it. Just it's a it's a dissonance, all this sort of like pretending not to do what you're actually doing. Now that I've seen that phenomenon, I see it everywhere. And would you say that given that you've done this kind of historic dive, that your exercise sort of takes you back in time, is this a new thing? Are the Jane Fonda videos a little bit more honest about what they're really doing? Or is that dual consciousness is kind of part of how the exercise industry has always worked? You know, there are moments of incredible frankness, like ideological frankness in the Jane Fonda genre. You know, Jane Fonda and also there's a series of exercise tapes that were put out by a cosmetics company that were led and sort of narrated by this soap opera actress whose name is escaping me, that it was sort of parallel to Jane Fonda starting in the late 80s and early 1990s. And Jane Fonda began in 1982. Jane Fonda, you know, gives her audience of pretty explicitly stay-at-home mothers, like women who are at home doing this on a VCR in their own living rooms while their children are at school. And she gives them a pep talk whenever they use weights. It's like, we're going to use weights. Don't be afraid. It is simply not possible for you to bulk up in this. And, you know, you will still see that. Right. There is a very explicitly feminist, I think pretty good column about women's weightlifting called Ask a Swole Woman, which is now on, it's moved around to a few different sites. I think it's currently on Vice, where this woman, Casey Johnson, who is a weightlifter and a writer, will like answer people's questions and is very body positive. She will also emphasize, do not worry, do not be afraid of gaining muscle to her you know, female readers. And it is very interesting to me to see so much acknowledgement that the disciplining of the body has a goal of altered appearance rather than an increased utility. You know, the aim is to be better at this passive thing. The aim is to be more appealing to others who look at you, not to be able to lift heavier shit or run faster. It is very specifically about like being looked at and by extension being smaller. And this is something 
that also comes up a little bit in the early Jane Fonda stuff, but is like very much emphasized by sort of contemporary feminists or like women aimed weightlifters is like the more muscle you have, the more calories you can consume without storing food as fat. So it's like muscle gain. Don't worry, it's not actually going to make you bigger, but it will enable you to be less antagonistic towards food. I mean, the science is, is factual. Like, it's not like they're making it up, but it's ideologically very strange to me because it's... It's almost pre-guilt, isn't it? Like right. You, like, so you don't have to feel guilty when you do eat. Yes, it's preemptively alleviating guilt in a way that sort of suggests a broader regimentation and calorie counting. I don't think they are necessarily wrong to assume that like there are like vast amounts of, you know, like middle class women of varying ages who are sort of on a continual self surveillance project around their consumed versus exerted calories, right? Like a huge section of the female population is like sort of engaging in like acts of voluntary starvation and intense self monitoring. And this is like something that exercise is related to is this like self quantification. This is something that Mark Greif brings up in 2005, this essay called Against Exercise, which is in his book. It's like, it's rhetorically really over the top. It's like very dramatic. I don't totally agree with it. And it's just, it's absent any feminist analysis, but he pauses exercise as sort of like spiritually degrading because it has the exerciser quantify herself, consider her body not as sort of a vehicle for human expression and experience, but as sort of a set of numbers. And exercise does sort of lend itself to that kind of quantification and regimentation. It's interesting because on the one hand, quantification and regimentation is, as Greif says, it can be, you know, very spiritually deadening. But on the other hand, something I really like about weightlifting in particular is that it sort of resists dysmorphia when you can quantify how much stronger you're getting, right? Like it is very easy for women, I think, to feel a sense of like unreality or uncertainness about reality about their bodies, like looking in the mirror and not being able to tell whether or not they're living up to this standard because of how psychologically warping depictions of women's bodies can be. But, you know, there's no uncertainty about, like, I can lift a heavier bar of metal this week than I could lift last week. It's like, it's it's very objective and hard to and hard to distrust. And Mark sort of talks about exercise as kind of, I think he calls it like the emissary from the realm of biological processes or something like that. And yeah. ultimately, I, I take his point to be that that sort of packages as ultimate freedom what's actually ultimately unfreedom, right? That it is a kind of a subservience to, to these metrics. But at the same time, as you say, it, it clearly also partakes of the opposite of this ability to sort of say, this is who I am and this is what I can do. And within this space, I have expanded what I'm capable of. It does yield results, right? In uh, ways that are very concrete and easy to measure. What it yields results to the service of is like an entirely different question, right? And that's where I think we can be helped out by the Giotolentino essay on Athleisure Bar and Kale, The Tyranny of the Ideal Woman. Right. And Tolentino looks at exercise as part of a phenomenon of women's attempt to optimize themselves for these degrading and all-demanding twin systems of capitalism and patriarchy, right? She focuses much more of her critique on capitalism, but she's like talking about how her affinity for bar classes, which is a kind of exercise I have not tried sweet green salads and athleisure is evidence of this sort of expulsion of excess pleasures or excess time from her life, right? It's like all of my free time is spent on becoming a better worker, right? So like her free time is spent in bar class. Her free time 
is bent online to get a kale Caesar salad that she rapidly eats while she looks at her email. The bit about the salad in that essay is, is <laughs> tremendous, about how that's essentially food designed to be eaten while you're scrolling on your phone. I mean, it's just like, you can never consume a salad in one of those places ever again. And I'll be like, yeah, this is definitely <laughs> correct. This became popular. If the cell phone had never been invented, like these places would not be a thing. Yeah, it's... um. Even the interior design of those places looks like an app. You know, it's a lot of like right. very minimal bare white walls and sort True. of slightly pink lighting, sterility of the cleanliness of it. So Gia Tolentino, writing about how exercise grants us more energy and more endurance and that these capacities are sort of implicitly filled in by the demands of capitalism. And I kind of buy it. It just seems so bleak. I kind of want to resist is that exercise, does it make you better able to concentrate at work? Maybe. Or does it also grant you additional capacity to sort of resist these systems of capitalism and patriarchy? And that's sort of the more optimistic potential that I'm like really interested in. Yeah. And that's when I was like, well, there has to be examples of women's fitness and women's exercise granting women sort of ways out and exits from these tyrannical <laughs> demands on on their productivity as mothers and sort of sexual service providers and workers. And what I came to doing that research was even older than Jane Fonda. I came to the original women's self-defense movement, right. which a lot of people think arose in the 1970s, sort of along with the second wave feminist movement, but is actually way older. It arose sort of in the U.S. and the United Kingdom at the same time in response to suffrage, because the suffrage movements were met with pretty brute police force and also coincided with women's more general access to public life in which they were subjected to street harassment and sexual harassment, which was huge news when women began entering the public sphere on their own in the early 20th century. It's like all these archival newspaper articles. It's like, women are getting yelled at on the street by ruffians. And it's, uh, it's, it was thought of as very novel. And, you know, women at the time were taking on boxing and jujitsu, specifically jujitsu, which was considered sort of a, in this way that I think is kind of racist against the Japanese people who created the form. It was understood as sort of a more nimble and delicate and appropriately feminine form of self-defense. So you see these political cartoons of suffragists kicking away the police and women in, you know, bustles and very elaborate hats, kneeing their sexual harassers as they walk about in public. That's fascinating because it actually echoes something I was thinking about the other day about self-defense classes specifically. Bear with me as I like put together a thought thread as I try to think in 2020, like, let's just, yeah. just like, put a giant asterisk there. So what you just described was that the origins of self-defense as an exercise mode from women came out of the suffragettes, which means they were probably likely developed by white women specifically, right? right? Like we know that there were black suffragettes, but that they were not usually included in the leadership of the large suffragette movements or the organizations supporting those movements. And that ties pretty directly to something I was thinking about self-defense recently, which is that when I applied to college, I went to college in New York and my like conservative parents were like, we have one condition for you going to college in New York. You have to take a self-defense class. And I was like, all right, I'm a self-respecting young feminist. Like I will do this thing. 
and I took the class and it was like fine, you know, but, and we learned like some chokeholds and like, you know, all the stuff that they later retaught in Miss Congeniality about like stepping on someone's like insole and like all of that stuff. And I've never used it, not once, because when I look back at the self-defense class and why my parents were motivated to make me take it, this is obviously all oriented around sexual assault, right? Like, this is all oriented towards, like, protecting my sexuality. And everything that I was taught in that self-defense class seemed to presume, I realize upon reflection, that I would be attacked on the street, that I would be attacked by a stranger, that I would be attacked by someone physically larger and more powerful than me. And when rape came for me, none of those things were true. You know, like none of those presuppositions came true. (laughs) That self-defense class was completely useless in the context of being raped by someone I knew. All the presuppositions were wrong. And so, like, I think that there's a lot of racial politics and a lot of misunderstandings of rape as a crime that seem to underpin our understanding of self-defense. You know what I mean? Yeah, there's a presumption that, first of all, that rape victims are white and that rape perpetrators are black (laughs) uh, and that they are strangers who commit rape using physical force. And these are myths that overlook large numbers of sexual assaults and sort of like just misdiagnose the problem in ways that are sort of designed to confirm racist assumptions that people already hold, right? So like, there's like that misunderstanding. And also the thing that used to bug me about self-defense classes when I was a younger feminist that I'm that I have more mixed feelings about now, but it seems to put responsibility onto women to prevent sexual assault rather than onto men to not commit sexual assault, right? So it's like something about you know, these jujitsu school marms in the early 20th century and about the second wave self-defense classes that you can still find taught on a lot of campuses is how do you make those tools available without making them a moral obligation, right? It's like, and this is a big issue, I think, around women's exercise more generally is like, how do you make its positive attributes available to people without creating a moral obligation to have a certain kind of body or be a certain size, Mm. or have certain capacities. Mm. It can't be a responsibility, but it has to be an option. Self-defense imagines the sphere in which one is under threat as the public sphere, right? Right. And it risks getting to the point where Self-defense is a precondition for safely entering that public sphere. And of course, that's bullshit. That cannot be, that's not a free society. If if you have to be able to kick ass in order to walk across the street, that A, that as Laura was pointing out, that's not the way the world actually is, right? The private sphere, the domestic sphere can hold just as many dangers. But on the other hand, it does sort of create this moralization when and how you get to be outside safely. And to what extent you have to make this kind of devil's bargain in order to occupy space without having to worry about it. I mean, I live in a part of San Francisco where like when the gyms closed down, the city closed down because like it's 50% gyms. This is, <laughs> this is the way gay male bodies purchase their square footage in the city was through pumping iron and projecting this image of being able to fight back, right? And for gay men, it's this incredibly ambivalent thing, right? Of does that mean that public 
safety, the ability to just be yourself in public comes at the price of not being yourself anymore, right? That you have to sort of create yourself this weird body that society sort of claims you don't have anyway. I think that it's made the gyms here such an ambivalent part of life. It's always understood as a part of liberation, but always as a little bit of like identifying with the aggressor, I think, as well. Yeah. Adrian, you bring up two really good points, each of which I want us to be able to discuss. One is for the ability to defend yourself with force or to use force against others, which is historically something that's been attributed to men and not to women with some reason. Right. And then secondly is the male gaze, the cultivation of a physique, either be it by gay men or by women that is sexually attractive to men under this pretty narrow and often strange and grotesque rubric. So I want to talk about force first. I'm going to try not to babble too much because this is the part that I only kind of understand. And then I want to talk about the male gaze. So like I was speaking recently with a friend of mine who's a feminist philosopher, Linda Hirschman. We were talking about the Tara Reid accusation of sexual assault against Joe Biden and this kind of horrific Faustian bargain that American women are going to be faced with in November is where you go into a voting booth and you have a choice between two alleged sexual assaulters and uh, what does your citizenship mean under those conditions, right? And Linda was telling me that, and I had not read this man since my freshman year of college, and I probably didn't do the reading, so let's (laughs) (laughs) pretend, but uh, she was telling me that Thomas Hobbes understood a precondition of democratic participation or like valid participation in government to be the ability to use force because you have to be able to use force and able to fairly cede that capacity for violence to the state, right? Like you have to have a capacity for violence that you give over to the state in order for the state's monopoly on violence to be legitimate. And Hobbes was pretty anxious because he actually, unlike a lot of his contemporaries wanted his conception of citizenship to also apply to women, right? He's like, well, women don't have the capacity to use force. So how can they possibly cede that capacity to the state? So how can women's citizenship be legitimate? How can the state's governance over women be legitimate? And the way he got around this was by saying that even big, strong men have to go to sleep at some point, which I think is clever, but it's sort of the sort of allied all the violence that they can commit while they're awake. But I'm interested in women's cultivation of the capacity for force, if not as like an actively used tool, because as Laura pointed out, it's often not a very effective or useful tool in actual sexual assault circumstances, but maybe as like a deterrent or a threat. Like I want to look like I could inflict force when I'm outside, in part because, you know, I'm a small white woman and a lot of racist violence has been done in defense of small white women who look like me and our alleged frailty. And also because my physical smallness is interpreted often as a like sort of invitation to hurt me. So I'm like, I'm interested in women's increased capacity for force, even if sort of it's assigned political utilities, as Laura's was saying, often like kind of miss the mark. But then over to the male gaze, which is really screwy. You know, there's so much, so much of exercise is for women. It's implicitly geared towards like being thin enough so that you can be attractive to men with the idea that men's sexual attention towards you, a woman will validate your existence, give you an excuse for being, but also, you know, implicitly provide you these things that men don't really provide anymore if they ever did, like material security, like money, a house, protection. So it's like a lot of women are 
working very hard in the Jane Fonda aerobics videos that I'm watching. They're putting in a ton of effort to get this man, but then it's not clear what the man gets them. It's like the treadmill itself. You know, you're working really hard and you're maybe not going to get anywhere. Adrian, it sounded like you had some interesting thoughts on like what the desirable body accomplishes. I mean, it's a really good question. I mean, especially because in Jim's spaces around the Castro, it is both of those two things. It's imagining a male gaze, although one positioned in a queer dimension. And at the same time, these gyms were partly also in themselves deeply problematic conceptions of gay self-empowerment. Usually, right, if you think about which gay men could legitimately claim to be using violence to self-defend, well, those were wealthy white gay men, most likely, right? I mean, otherwise, it's just really not recommended in the United States to use any amount of violence because the state will visit it 50-fold back at you. I do think that there's something really interesting about the level of explicitness with which the the male gaze enters into gym spaces. And I say this as someone who really dislikes gyms, but keeps getting dragged by friends to different gyms. I've tried them all and I've hated every one of them. But, you know, some of them are really quite obvious. My husband and I went to the bar method once and we very quickly got the sense that it wasn't for us when we were instructed to like really work out muscles that we did not have. And we're like, well, so this is not, this isn't for us. I cannot, I understand what you're saying, but I cannot pop that part. Of I'm sorry. Um, uh, I, I, I'm I've tried. i full Mad Libs in my head right now, imagining what they like pop those pelvic floors ladies. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was a lot more it was a lot more explicit than that and i was like what but it is fascinating to me that there are the ones that sort of still have the kind of aerobics kind of like spectate yourself and then there's the ones where you know soul cycle or something like that which is very popular here in the castro but at the same time i think is largely drawing in straight women from across the city And of course, that's a thing that while obviously you're still sculpting yourself for a male gaze in the more metaphysical sense, the the visual presentation of yourself is actually really different, which I find kind of fascinating. Like, right, it's a very dark space. There are mirrors everywhere, but no one ever looks at them because like you're sort of stuck there together, like barely like six inches apart and everyone's just always bopping. And then there's like a 23 year old screaming at you how you're doing awesome and everything. And you're like, like, this must be hell. I do wonder about like where the more general question of the male gaze and the visualization, right? The way you're invited to literally spectate yourself, how they kind of intersect. Yeah, the huge sort of full length mirrors, those like floor to ceiling mirrors that are in so many gyms that are ostensibly and at times probably practically for you to make sure that your form is correct. I've never understood a correct form in my life, but it also is this invitation to like self-objectification, right? Right. You're supposed to look at yourself as a outsider, like as a sexual consumer of your own body would. And that's very strange. You know, this might be one of those, there's this tendency among lesbians to sort of read a lesbian subtext into places where it really isn't. But I've been kind it's of everywhere. I mean, let's be real. Lesbian subtext is everywhere. <laughs> for but I have found it uncanny in the Jane Fonda videos explicitly. I have so much more to say about Jane Fonda, but please continue. Oh, yeah, let's let's there's yeah. a lot to say about Jane Fonda. But these Jane Fonda workout videos which are from, you know, now she's an activist and this is a very different section of her career, but she started them in her mid 40s. And the advertisement for these videos was her own body, right? Which is something that Gia Tolentino writes in 
her piece about Barr, the founder of Barr, her own body was the advertisement. And Jane Fonda has this body that looks like, it looks like the woman in weird science. It looks like a robot, like a 13-year-old designed a sexy robot. It's just like ridiculous. And in fact, that body was not the product of exercise. She revealed later that it was the product of bulimia. You know, the outfits are very of their time. They are very 80s. It is neon colored, high cut leotards that sort of really emphasize, like almost like they're bragging. The clothing emphasizes the least flattering parts of the female body, like the biggest parts, like the upper legs and lower abdomen is the part that is entirely emphasized by Jane Fonda's outfits. And of course, hers are like basically non-existent. But then she's performing these exercises which involve a lot of like splits and leg contortions and intense flexibility and she's making these sounds that sound like sounds of sexual pleasure which is another thing that happens a lot in I think gay male oriented gym spaces is that there's like these vocalizations of exertion or pain that are eerily similar to like this other kind of exertion to which like, you know, the one is the mean towards which you reach the end of the other one, right? Like the exertion and the pain is supposed to be an avenue towards a sexual pleasure, but they are like weirdly mirrored as if they're not entirely different things. I don't want to read too much into that because I think, you know, you could get into the point where like, you know, sometimes a barbell is just a barbell, but like it's conspicuous to me when I'm doing these Jane Fonda videos on YouTube in quarantine. <laughs> Oh, she has a very specific way. I remember it. So Jane Fonda videos were very much a part of my like 90s upbringing. I distinctly remember a way that she will look at the camera and be just sort of like, ooh, you know, like yeah. <laughs> it's a very performative, you know, like almost campy kind of exertion because you know that she is so fit at that point that she, like, she's literally not breaking a sweat during any of these videos. So her exertion, quote unquote, is not actually exertion. It's just like a performance of it, like insert exertion mm. here, you know? <laughs> right. Yeah, it's almost like a drag performance. It's like, yeah, this it is, is it's what very a sexy like lady looks like and sounds like and acts like. It's right. A, but it's so, there's so many layers of self-awareness and sort of mm -hmm. self-consciousness that like the audience is lost it's just complete simulacrum of sexuality in these Jane Fonda videos but in some way that would almost suggest that maybe someone like well either bo both Gia Tolentino and Mark Reif kind of are maybe being a little too hard on these practices in the sense that if it is understood as essentially a drag performance right to sort of say I'm performing an ideal that I have an ironic relationship to, to some extent, right? That I take seriously, but only within limits, that would be fairly liberatory, right? If you could say, I will act like I'm this, you know, badass workout fiend, and then I'm going to go back to doing something totally different. I mean, that would be in some way great. I just wonder if that's, if that's actually happening. I, yeah, I don't think that's actually happening. <laughs> There are some that are like very unself-serious or like that are very humorous sort of emerging now. Yeah, that's kind of what my brain was circling back to also through my own like narrative journey with exercise of like the only way I, this is this has always been really hard to put into words. I had to figure out for myself because definitely no one taught me in my upbringing or my life how to access an experience of physical joy within exercise that would be beneficial to mental health because my therapist told me to basically. <laughs> uh, 
she kept telling me that there would be something there that would be valuable to mental health. And for like 30 years, I had almost no relationship to exercise. And it was definitely a weight loss motivation after I had my first child that forced me into like exploring that relationship more directly. And there was some weight loss that was the outcome of that exploration, but much, 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 much more valuable than the weight loss was figuring out how I could access physical joy with an exercise. And I think the way that I did it now that I think about it is I've done plenty of yoga, like I've done group exercise classes and like definitely found them valuable sometimes. But my, especially during this like COVID season, like limited access to any sort of group exercise, I've just been hiking in the woods in San Francisco a lot. And now that I sort of catalog that experience for myself, it's an experience where I can't self-surveil, right? There's no mirrors. There's no other participants to compare myself to. Like there might be people passing, but I'm not directly linked with them in the activity. And there's a way that like hiking for more than 45 minutes makes my brain let go. Like I often find that I'll be listening to a podcast for about like the first 30 or 45 minutes. And then I kind of hit a different physical state where I actively want to let go of that like intellectual tether. And I think that transition point is really important to what we're talking about here. You know, like, and I I don't even know that it is necessary for everybody to access physical joy with an exercise. Like I hope they can, but for me, I think those are the sort of things that enable it for me. Well, it's really interesting that you say that because isn't there kind of an, I mean, I must admit that I haven't watched the Jane Fonda tapes in a long, long time. You guys are are way ahead of me there. But uh, I remember how that boom kind of get remediated in like 80s movies, right? And like TV and comedy, et cetera, et cetera. And it was always so interesting in that what was made fun of was what people wanted out of it, right? If you had to work out, that was essentially, there was something kind of ridiculous about you. Right. I feel like in, in a lot of 80s comedies, it's usually a sign that like someone's like not really in touch with themselves. And I mean, it does sort of contain this kind of weak utopianism of what if you could just do this activity just because you fucking feel like it. Right. Not because of this reason or that reason, not because you're getting older or, or whatever, just because it feels nice. And yeah, exactly. You can turn your brain off. Uh, and so like there is something kind of I think that, that that's the other interesting thing here that women especially, but in general, I think the fitness industry is sort of never one that you can just participate in without someone asking why, or why don't you, right? And in some way, your position is always going to say something about you. And one of the things I think you find in these activities like hiking is precisely that like, no one might ask you because they may not even know you're doing it, right? You could be getting groceries, but no, actually, I'm hiking 10 miles today, right? right? And no one's going to be like, oh, is this about you having had a kid or whatever? It's going to be about... Nope. Local woman feels like walking. And it strikes me that like that's something that we're never quite allowed to do when we enter a space like a gym, right? Mm-hmm. It's always like, what brings this person mm-hmm. here? Like when I go to a yoga studio, for instance, like, I always see the guy who's got the outfit and I'm like, Ugh, this guy's here to show off how great his flow is and I'm just going to be pissed at him the entire time. And who like will like breathe really loudly because like he really gets it and I don't. And I'm like, I'm already like mad at this man. And like it's been like 20 seconds and he might be totally nice. But you know what I mean? Like we're, we're encouraged to sort of over determine each other in these spaces when it comes to fitness Uh and what laura is bringing up is there are these spaces where i'd say surfing is another one of those right where it's just like nope waves are cool and you might get tumbled you know but it it highlights how much gyms aren't that right like how Mm -hmm. we're always supposed to read into it and sort of psychologize and narrativize exactly biographically why people are there there's a piece that is in the mark Breife essay that i was a little skeptical of when I first read it. But now Laura and Adrian, you guys are making me reconsider where he asserts that because exercise is a 
physical function that it belongs in private. It belongs in the home and not in the public space of a gym. And he implies that there's a degree of shame to the physical. But I'm hearing in Laura's account, the sort of like liberation of a competition-free solitude, like this ability to, I'm going to sound corny, but like to commune with the body and to make it into a home rather than an encumbrance, Mm -hmm. find joy in it. It's something that you can do when you are not either looking at the annoying yoga guy or worrying that you are being perceived as having the wrong motivations for your exercise. Maybe it's Maybe the trick is that we all have to do this alone, right. far away from other people. Although we are right now, right? Is, it, is that so much better? I guess we can test it right now. <laughs> I mean, if I had had to do an aerobics class in a gym, in a studio, in front of other people, I don't think I ever would have right. gone in. There's something about my YouTube Jane Fonda experience that is happening entirely you know, in this living room that I'm in now talking to you guys from, where... I don't have to take it seriously or be subject to the judgment of others. It's very literally, I I dance like nobody's watching Mm -hmm. because nobody is. Yeah. And I think I really like the way you just put all of that. And for me, at least, I think it's connected to public space. I think it's connected to natural space. And I think it's connected to divorcing the action from the outcome, which I think also owes a debt to some of the literature around eating disorders in recent years. I'm thinking of a book I love, Kelsey Osgood's How to Disappear Completely, which is like a sort of memoir slash critique of her life with anorexia. As we've been talking about these modes of quantification, I've been thinking about what she writes. I'm going to read I'm going to read a passage that I pulled up. She kind of writes explicitly against, you know, all kinds of things that we used to see in the 90s of like when gymnasts would compete. You used to see in the Chiron like their weight. And I remember people's 25 most beautiful people list used to list weight, you know, like weight has receded a little bit, a little bit from public discussion, but it used to be all over the place. And how to disappear completely, she writes, even when someone eating disordered has recovered, he or she still retains an attachment to the anorexic value system. The lowest weight one reached remains a point of pride, not of shame. And it's rarely a selfless act to lay out the nitty gritty of one's diet. I think there's so much attachment between the anorexic value system and the capitalistic value system, right? Like it it seems like that's what we're circling around all the time is like this effort towards like what Tolentino calls optimization is just like being a better tool for capitalism. (laughs) Like plain and pretty simple. Yeah. I also read that book and loved it. And something I really appreciate about Osgood's treatment of anorexia is how like rigorously and repeatedly she refuses to discuss what her weight was and what she actually ate. Because as she points out there, like it would be understood by anorexics reading it and maybe sort of by people who have an anorexic value system, which is a lot of us in this sort of body regime that we occupy as a, not, you know, not as a cautionary tale, but as a how-to manual, which is like something you have to be conscious of when you're discussing exercise. You know, there is, like we said at the very beginning, there's this like simultaneous enactment and disavowal. Exactly. Yes. Of like the weight loss goal. Right. Like you can talk about how terrible it is that people just want to lose weight all the time. And then you're still talking about losing weight. It's a it's a little bit of a trap. You know, like Tolentino discusses this a little bit. It's like even if you recognize that your actions are indefensible by a moral logic, like that still leaves the incentive structure intact. You know, I think that as we have sort of started to resist the moralization of bodies in that way, 
it's almost more dangerous. And I think I'd take that to be Gio Tontino's point a little bit too, to sort of capitulate to these demands as a reality principle. Say like, well, it's not good, it's not moral, but you know, it turns out that as your weight goes up, your wages go down in America. So, right, like I may not like it, but I'll still do it, right? And that it is essentially, you know, on the one hand, it's good we don't connect body shape to morality anymore. On the other hand, what it's left us with is, you know, the same way sort of self-help books work, right? That like, we didn't make the rules, we just play along with them and never really be able to question them. And a lot of people do still connect body shape to morality, even if it's not explicit, you know? Oh, sure, sure. But let's say, but, but let's say even if people don't, right? Like the cynical sure. version of this is not a whole lot better. Correct. Right. Saying I may not like it any more than you do. Right. But still, you know, um, yeah. you know, if you want any success, you better. Right. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And even the cynical version of this is maiming and, and dangerous. Another point that's been bugging me. I have no solution. I just want to raise a problem, which is that exercise so often gets packaged or branded maybe as self-care, which is, of course, something that, you know, it's a phrase that Audre Lorde coined that meant talking about taking care of herself as a Black lesbian activist with cancer. And it had a very specific meaning that has now been distorted into sort of like a call for consumption, right? But like, Mm -hmm. Laura, you were pointing out exercise does provide when you're doing it right, a degree of psychic relief it's joyfulness it's neurochemically altering it's Mm -hmm. when you're doing it right it feels amazing and i wonder if maybe that quality of self-care be it in the actual joy or in the regimentation if it can have sort of a palliative effect that nurtures compliance right like are we exercising all the time so that we're too busy and too exhausted Mm. to dismantle the structures that are actually keeping us down I'm not sure I like judge that like as far as coping mechanisms go. I think exercise is mm-hmm. pretty close to a morally neutral one. But I do wonder about like all this rhetoric of exercise as a means of self-improvement. It might not merely be optimization as Tolentino calls it. It might also mm-hmm. be a, a kind of sedation. I think about that all the time with modes of self-starvation too, you know, that like the whole diet industry is just one effort to keep at least 50% of the population pacified, hungry, quiet, and weak. Yeah, you literally can't think when you're (laughs) starving or hungry. Yeah. So you can't think too hard about the world around you. Totally. No, but you make a good point about exercise to a degree having the same outcome. You know, like if we're worried about how to squeeze in that hour, hour and a half, or whatever it is a day, what aren't we doing with that mode of time, with that space of time? And we haven't really talked about social media yet, but that's another part in which... I'm finding myself, I love Instagram and the moments when I hate Instagram are the ones where it resembles for me the way people used to talk about exercise, right? Here are the five things you have to do today. And you're like, oh my God, like these are actually good ideas, but I don't like this whole have to. Mm -hmm. And it's a really kind of interesting thing around so many issues, around politics, around mindfulness. And you're like, you have to be more mindful. And you're like, oh my God, I'm sorry. I'm not. What what were we talking about? There's all these things that like, and I always think like, gee, like my structure of guilt here is exactly the structure of guilt I have when I realize I haven't worked out in like a week. Right. And there is a way in which this mode that GSSA sort of points out is kind of starting to envelop more and more of our lives. So it's actually on the one hand, maybe the Body politics of it are becoming better, but the capitalist politics of it are becoming more intense and generalized, actually. I was just imagining that there might be listeners who are like listening to this on their hike. So I hope we just ruined it for all of you. <laughs> <laughs> you thought you'd get a moment's oh, yeah. peace. <laughs> You're on a 
right now, you're a traitor. <laughs> Get off the treadmill, Karen. <laughs> oh, where do we go from there? Um, Moira, you've been so generous with your time. I feel like we shouldn't take up too much of it or else we won't be good enough tools for capitalism. We won't have enough time to self-discipline. Oh, yeah, I have to go. I have to go optimize myself. You have to get back to that. The Feminist Present is co-hosted by Adrian Dom and Laura Good. It is produced by Laura Good and Megan Kalmus. All of our original music is by Julie Herndon. We are eternally grateful for funding support from the institute named for a woman in a building named for a woman, the Michelle R. Clayman Institute for Gender Research at Stanford University, where we are especially grateful to our feminist colleagues, Cynthia Newberry, Allison Dahl-Crosley, Natalie P. Mason, Jennifer Portillo, Wendy Skidmore, and Sarah Mersney. The Podfather is R. Lanier Anderson, Senior Associate Dean of Humanities and Sciences. Funding for this podcast is very much not provided by the following product services and entities. Blue Apron, Hims, Casper Mattresses, the Trump administration, and that stupid wine club started by two MIT grads. You can follow us on Instagram or Twitter. We are at Feminist Present on both platforms. And if you want to chat feminism, Miss Rona, or anything else, go ahead and shoot us an email at feministpresent at gmail.com. No rape or death threats, fellas. Stanford has really good IT support, and we will find you. Appreciate it so much if you'd leave us a review, preferably five stars, on iTunes to help other folks join our discussion. Take good care out there. Mm